Hello and welcome to Cybernia, a podcast exploring science in Ireland and beyond. Brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. I'm Lenny Antonelli, and coming up on the show today, Marie talks to astronaut Shane Kimbrow about the challenges of brushing your teeth in space. Sylvia visits Trinity College in Dublin to find out why Ireland is becoming a world leader in the study of things that are just one millionth of a millimetre long. And I take a tour of the brand new National Computer Museum in Galway. The US Embassy in Dublin recently brought astronaut Colonel Shane Kimbrough to Ireland on a three-day visit. Marie caught up with him to talk about spacewalking, getting some sleep aboard the International Space Station, and how astronauts managed to brush their teeth in zero gravity. Um, I'm going to ask you um, a question you've been asked a bazillion times, but was it your childhood dream to actually go into space? Um, it was, and uh, what, what kind of inspired me back then was seeing the Apollo astronauts walk on the moon. So when I was a small child, uh, I got to see that on TV, and I got to actually see some of the launches that my grandfather took me down to. So it just grew a love for it and something that I you... I did. I, yeah. I mean, although I, you know, the dream actually was shattered a few times. Um, when I went off to college at, yeah. at West Point, I figured, okay, that dream's done. Maybe I'm going to be in the Army, and I'm going to hopefully be a pilot. And, yeah. um, and so I thought it was gone, uh, but a few years after getting in the Army, I met a gentleman that was an Army astronaut, which I didn't even know existed. <laughs> so I figured there was a way to potentially re-spark that flame, and uh, I did it. I kept working hard. So it sort of serendipity, hard. really, wasn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's brilliant. And can I ask you, when you were aboard Endeavour, what was your most nerve-wracking space experience? Or was it before you even got there? Was it the build-up? Um, I think there was much nerve-wracking. I was, I mean, it's a, obviously an incredible launch experience, um, but I was so ready to, to experience it, and I was very calm and very, you know, just ready to go. Um, probably the most nerve-wracking thing for our mission was when we lost a tool bag on one of the spacewalks. So um, that was unfortunate, of course, but the, the great news is that we quickly replanned everything and, and all the mission objectives still were accomplished. So. So as you watched it float away, you were already thinking about all the backup plans that you have and they kick into... We had not planned for that one. We planned for a lot of things, but that's something we had not planned for. So it was amazing to see the team, um, and we have hundreds of people on the ground supporting us, of course, but to see our interaction with them and how quickly we came up with a plan to make it all happen. And because you've undergone so many um, simulations and so much training, does it feel normal when you go into space? Does it feel like just an extension of what you've already been doing or is that an odd Uh, question no it's a great question and um, in some ways you know know what to expect in some ways because you've trained it for in our case a year year and a half before you go for all these different situations Um, you can't there's no way to simulate the launch no way now we have simulators that shake around and all that stuff but it's nothing like what it really feels like Um, and going outside when you do a spacewalk again Nothing to really prepare you for that. Um, we, we do a bunch of training. I felt very comfortable when I went outside. I wasn't disoriented but because of our training. and I knew exactly where to go and what to do. But just the feeling of, of you yourself floating at 28,000 kilometers per hour was, was amazing. And, you know, little things like floating around, eating, brushing your teeth. You know, you can't practice that stuff on Earth, <laughs> right? So everybody thinks we have a room at NASA. You go in and you punch the button and you float around. But we don't have that room. Okay, we have gravity at NASA as well. So... Um, the first time you experience it, and for me, the whole kind of couple of weeks was just a, such a great learning experience on how to do the little, how to live and work up in, in an environment like that. So all the normal stuff. All the normal stuff, which it's I thought was very saying. intriguing. You know, figuring out how to, you know, you can figure out how to brush your teeth and all that stuff, but there's better ways of doing it, and you kind of get better every time you do it. And how did you brush your teeth? <laughs> so it's, we have a toothpaste that's a little bit different. It's similar to what we have on Earth, but it doesn't foam up, foam up as much so that it doesn't go all over the place. So you kind of, you know, 
brush your teeth very similar to you do here. The problem is we don't have a sink to kind of spit everything out of it. Mm-hmm. So you pretty much swallow everything, which yeah. kind of sounds a, little, a bit gross, but that's just what you do when you're up there. So. Yeah, but liquid space, it just it's, yeah, it's yeah, like it's just an accident waiting to happen. Place, yeah. <laughs> and I actually want to ask you about sleeping in space. I mean, your body clock obviously is just going to be, it's going to be strange that way. And um, did you do you have any strange dreams in space? Does it just does it sort of mm. mess with the, um, the you know alpha and beta brainwaves? Yeah, right? I think so. And, and maybe other crew members will tell you different yeah. things. Probably everybody's just, but I don't remember having any you know strange or vivid weird dreams or anything. Um, I slept really really well out there. Uh, most people don't um, um. because I mean you're just like you're kind of just hanging. You're in a sleeping bag, but you're just kind of hanging there. You know, <laughs> attached to the wall somewhere and. Um, for me, they give you, I think you heard, eight hours of sleep per day is kind of on our timeline to do yeah. that. But, you know, it's hard to kind of go right to bed right now. Yeah. But um, I got over seven hours of sleep a night, which is phenomenal. They were like, how, you know, we have sleep medications to help people. And mm. they're like, how much stuff are you taking? You know, I'm like, <laughs> I didn't take anything. And they couldn't believe oh, it because I slept so well. So, anyway, I must have been working hard and was very tired yeah. at the end of the day. So, so what do you do in your downtime? In the daytime? Yeah, on your downtime, so for uh, relaxing, downtime, yeah. Yeah. We didn't have a whole lot of that on the shuttle mission just because we're super busy. But the, the moments I did, I would uh, I got to call home a few times, talk to the family. That was fantastic. Neat. Uh, we actually had a video, kind of a Skype set up um, one time that I got to do that with my kids. You know, and they didn't want to hear from me. They just wanted me to do all these tricks, like like I was a dog. You know, do a flip, daddy. You know, <laughs> do throw the M M&M and M across the room. You know, all this stuff. So that's what that entailed that whole time. Um, Let's see, we had a movie night one night, so the space station crew members had us over for a movie night, and uh, so we just uh, hung around, you know, in the module and watched a movie, and the Russians had, had us over for dinner one night on the Russian side, and that was really nice. Like your neighbors, they had us over yeah, for dinner. Yeah, so it was kind of cool. It was like go to the Russian segment for have Russian food for dinner, and uh, that's kind of what, what took up our free time. Taking pictures and looking out the window was, was a huge highlight as well. Yeah, so, that's what I was going to ask you. How tempted were you to constantly stare out the window at the view? Yeah, well, every time I would get my head in a window, someone would have to pull me away. It was that mesmerizing. So, uh, especially if you're going over places you're interested in, um, and we watched thunderstorms from above. You know, it's just amazing to oh see them react and the power and stuff. So it was, it was incredible. Wow. And um, I suppose one thing I want to ask you as well. Right now, you're working in robotics, aren't you? I am. So, what are you? What What does that entail? I mean, obviously, it's on. It's a bit more down to earth. But are you? <laughs> but are you? Um, helping design those robotic arms that um, work outside of the space station? Um, I'm not designing them. They've already thinking it's been built by uh, Canada, <laughs> and uh, they, that's a great contribution that Canada makes to the program. And So what my role is, is in, our, in the astronaut office, I'm the, kind of the head person for robotics. So I have a few folks that work for me. We just make sure that um, all the crew training, so everybody that goes into space is trained properly. So we have several ways to put them through up to Canada and in Houston. Yeah. Um, and some people, you know, some people, everybody's not the same. Just some people are better than others, and people that aren't great, we uh, help them to try to, to move them along better. And uh, and then as missions come along, we assign them the task, and then we train them specifically on the task that they're going to do in space. Um, and so there's a lot of robotic activity um, currently on orbit, so it's fun to kind of be involved. In that. Yeah, I'd say so. And, uh, yeah. And do you plan to go back in space? I sure hope so. So. Brilliant. Uh, you know, you go, you go up to space, you come back, and then you just start working technical jobs again, like in my case, robotics now, and hopefully I do a good enough job that my boss will ask me to fly in space exactly. again. So Fantastic. That's the goal. <laughs> Thank yeah. you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Uh, great so to much see you. Much.
Nanoscience is the study of matter at an extremely small scale, and Ireland is rapidly getting an international reputation for advances in this exciting area of science. Earlier this week, Sylvia went to Trinity College in Dublin to find out how the study of tiny things is achieving big results for research and industry. Some of our listeners may be familiar with the Science Gallery on Dublin's Pier Street. Well, today I'm in the building above the Science Gallery in the Cran Research Institute. It's part of Trinity College and it's dedicated to the study of nanoscience. And here to tell us more about it is Professor John Boland, who's the head of CRAN and the recent winner of a prestigious international prize for nanoscience. John, thanks for inviting me here today. And I suppose we should start off by defining what nanoscience is. Can you answer that question for sure. us? Well, first of all, welcome to CRAN. Um, I guess nanoscience is a science that studies very small matter. This is material on a very small length scale. Um, most people are familiar with a centimetre. Um, if you divide that by 10, you get a millimetre. Um, but in fact, nanoscience is a millionth of a millimetre, so it's really quite small. Um, and the reasons there is this whole focus on nanoscience is that when you start getting down to very small length scales, when matter gets to be very small, its properties uh, begin to change. Um, for instance, like if you take um, a gold, which we think of as being sort of a gold colour, um, and it's also inert, it doesn't rust, and that's why it's a symbol of stability and, and fate and thrust. Um, when you chop gold so it's very, very small on the nanoscale, it turns out it isn't gold in colour. In fact, it can be blue, it can be red. And its properties are completely different. In fact, it can be used for lots of different interesting things like catalytic reactions, ways to make materials to take, um, to take gas and to turn it into like a polymer. So the properties are very different. So that's the first thing. When you make stuff small, and uh, the properties are different. But what's also very interesting is that when stuff is small, when I look at like the cup that's sitting on the table there, it doesn't move. It sits still. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an illusion. Actually, when stuff gets very small, it's constantly moving. And so nanoscale objects are moving all the time. And what's great about that is that now that we can see them moving, the goal of nanoscience, one goal, is to understand how to make them move into patterns or structures that are good for us in terms of materials. Um, And one of our goals is to understand what are the rules? How do you make material or particles organize in structures that are useful? Um, And that's called self-assembly. And so it's one of the principles in nanoscience. And what is the purpose of doing all this research? Are there, you know, real-world applications for this? Yes, there are lots of real-world applications. I mean, um, as I said before, I mean, gold has got a particular application for rings and for a sort of a noble metal. Uh, but if you can make small gold, you can, um, you can make uh, sp- specific reactions go and you can, you can tend to, um, you know, turn particular materials into other more, more costly materials. And that's, that's a wonderful capability. Um, but I think, secondly, you can make a whole range of different materials you couldn't make before. As I said, um, this constant motion allows you to figure out what are the rules for assembling small nanoscale materials and to make, to make new interesting structures. Um, the smallest structures that most of us are familiar with, at least in everyday life, are transistors. They're parts of, of uh, computer chips. Uh, we tend, um, many, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago, a transistor was as big as 5 centimeters tall. Now a transistor is, in fact, it's so small that, in fact, you could fit millions on the top of a pin of a head, or at the top of the head of a pin, excuse me. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and the formation of these structures is through the methods of nanoscience, how you take large pieces of a material and you chop it down to make smaller materials, 
and then ultimately in the case of silicon, you end up making a device structure that ends up powering your computer. And can you give us some examples of you know where people would encounter nano science or nanomaterials in everyday life? Sure. I mean, for instance, um, there's one kind of nanomaterial called zinc oxide, which is now you get it in lots of the sunscreens that you use. And so it's a special kind of nanoparticle. It prevents this, the UV radiation from the sun getting to your skin. Um, and that's a very effective skin, um, sunblock. Um, it's also used, for instance, in cosmetics. Um, as you know, our, te- our skin tends to have blemishes, little holes and whatnot. Speak for yourself. <laughs> but, of course, um, n- nanoscale materials are so small, you can use these little particles to fill the holes. And so it's like a very perfect cosmetic spackle that goes over the skin and gives it a nice, a nice uh, sheer, sheer, uh, sheer complexion. Wow. Um, but it appears in other places as well. For instance, like um, as you probably know, um, most of the cars that we have now are increasingly made up of, of plastics. Um, and so they're not made of steel as before. Um, now, of course, the reason we used steel in the past was steel is very strong. And, um, of course, so now you want materials that are lightweight so that it doesn't use much fuel or petrol to drive the car. Uh, but they have to be as strong as steel. And so what's happening now is that many of the components of cars are being replaced by what we call composite materials. They're made up of plastic, but inside the plastic you have these nanoscale little wires that reinforce it. Um, this first came out in terms of, as you might imagine, in these wing mirrors, which always get knocked off. Mm. And so you can get a very robust wing mirrors that, that can take a beating and still bounce back. Oh, that sounds um, very useful. But increasingly what's happening is that many components of car engines, but also of aircraft, um, I mean, planes are, they have to be very robust, um, but they need to be lightweight. And so many of the components are being replaced by nanoscale materials. Okay. I believe Ireland is now ranked sixth in the world in terms of nanoscience research. Uh, what does that mean and how did we get so high up in the charts? Well, that ranking is actually based on, on um, looking at the publications as the scientific output that comes from Ireland. And then it asks the question of uh, the, the scientific um, papers that we publish, how often are these papers cited by our colleagues around the world? And what you find if you rank um, researchers from around the world, if you look at the average citation per publication, that is an average time a, a particular piece of scientific work is referenced by somebody else, you find that Ireland ranks number six in the world. And that's really quite an amazing ranking. When you look at Ireland, uh, we've made a fairly a reasonable but relatively modest investment in terms of nanoscience. But yet, the quality of the work we're doing, and in fact, I should say a large fraction of that um, publication base, uh, that is the scientific work that underpins that, that uh, ranking, a large fraction that has, in fact, been done at CRAN here at Trinity College. Okay, and that brings me on to my next question, is what exactly does go on here at CRAN, and how big is, is the research institute? Well, CRAN is about 250 um, researchers from 45 different countries, and so uh, we're very international. Um, We work in a range of different areas. Um, We have industry partners like Intel um, who would allow us to work in the computer area. We also work with other companies such as Craigana in the medical device area. In total, we work with with about 60 to 70 different um, companies. Um, Many of these companies are in Ireland. Some of them are multinational companies. Others are distributed all around Europe. So we have a very large presence. we're all about doing world-class research. That's, that, that's the bottom line is what we're about. 
Um, as you saw from the rankings, the rankings place is very high. It's those rankings that have attracted all these companies to work with us. Um, and so if I look at the various activities you're involved in, as I say, we're trying to work with Intel to try to develop, develop the next generation of computer chips. We're helping Intel understand how to make smaller computer chips and make them much more f uh, efficiently. We also work with other companies like, say, Craig, Craig Anna and, and uh, Boston Scientific, looking at medical devices such as, for instance, um, uh, um, uh, cardiovascular stents. Um, we also work with other companies um, such as uh, Millipore, trying to understand how we can make better filters and membranes, and these are the materials that they use in the pharmaceutical industry, that when they, when they create drugs, sometimes the drug is made in the presence of other materials, and they have to separate the drug from the materials. And so, um, so we work in a vast range of different areas. Um, I think importantly for, for CRAN, um, we have access to some of the world's best facilities, and that's why we're able to attract researchers from around the world. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's getting that, that perfect balance between doing world-class science, which allows us to raise the flag for Ireland in terms of nanoscience, and also be able to make sure we can attract companies to Ireland and to, um, in the case of companies that are already in Ireland, to make sure those companies are vested in Ireland and that they have access to our researchers and that the research that we do in collaboration with them helps them to grow the base here. Okay, and speaking of raising the flag, you recently travelled to Russia, I believe, to receive an award. Can you tell us what that was for? That's correct. I mean, I received um, um, the ASIN Nanoscience Prize. Um, it's a prize that's given every two years. Um, this year, um, actually, it's the 30th anniversary of the discovery of the STM. Um, What's the STM? STM is, um, uh, it's, it's called a... Um, uh, scanning tunnel microscope. And um, basically, it, is a, it was a technique that was developed 30 years ago. And what it does is it allows us to see atoms and molecules for the first time. In fact, its invention or discovery was really, it really heralded the beginning of nanotechnology. Uh, because as I told you, nanoscience and nanotechnology is about, looking, is about the behavior of small objects. Before the discovery of the STM, we couldn't see them. So we didn't know what they looked like. But post that, we've actually been able to understand how they move around and how to use the properties of small matter to do interesting things. And, um, and this year, since it was the 30th anniversary, um, I think the view was to recognize someone who was very early involved in, in, the, in this STM area. And my award was in recognition of the work I'd done early on in using STM to look at the chemistry and physics of surfaces, but particularly how you can use that kind of chemistry to understand how to miniaturize and make smaller computer chips. And we've been working in that space for, well, actually probably almost 30 years. And, um, and it's advanced a lot, but in uh, more recent times we've been actually learning how to now move away from the kinds of computer chips Intel uses to try to develop new kinds of computer chips that might be useful in the future. Okay, well congratulations on that award and thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks to Sylvia for that and you can find out more about the Cron Institute and its work by visiting cron, that's C-R-A-N-N, dot tcd, dot I-E. Now we come to our culture corner 
NUI Galway is the site of the brand new National Computer and Communications Museum, which is home to a fascinating array of old gizmos and gadgets. The museum doesn't open to the public until National Science Week on November 13th, but I went along recently to get a sneak preview. So I'm here at the brand new National Computer and Communications Museum with its uh, curator, Brendan Smith. We're at NUI Galway at the Digital Enterprise Research Institute. Uh, Brendan, can you tell me why set up a National uh, Computer and Communications Museum? Uh, because um, Ireland and Galway in particular has a very proud record uh, of digital technology, especially in the area of communications. Forty years ago this year, Digital Equipment Corporation came to Ireland, came to Galway, and they were the largest mini computer manufacturer at the time. And we have a proud tradition. And what we want to do is promote an awareness among all ages, but particularly among young people, the actual heritage that we have in this area and to build on that knowledge, uh, develop into the future. Because what the Irish government is trying to do at the moment is develop a knowledge economy, a knowledge society. And for that, the young people of today need the skills to make that happen. So in Galway, we have some of the large companies, largest companies involved in IT. We have Hewlett Packard, who are uh, very much uh, avant-garde at the moment in cloud technology. We have Cisco, which are famous for their big screens. Uh, We have uh, computer gaming companies like EA that uh, just officially opened yesterday with their subsidiary Bioware. So it's a logical place, being the oldest digital city in the country, for it to happen here. But it is national because we promote so many elements uh, from across the country but also from across the world. So you can see here on my right is an exhibit dedicated to uh, Apple. This is Apple's first popular computer known as the Apple II and it came out from 1978 onwards. That was one of the earliest computers. So this wasn't a Mac? No, oh no, the Mac only came in 84 which is a full seven years after Apple was founded. This computer was was very famous because it was the first computer, or one of the first, there was another one, Commodore Pet, that we'll see later, that brought computing, microcomputing, into offices. Before that, you had huge mainframes or minis that Digit were making, but there was no computer that would sit on one's desk and do things like word processing or accountancy. And Apple uh, brought their computer out in conjunction with a package called PhysiCalc, which was the first electronic spreadsheet sheet and PhysiCalc as you can see from the panel is short for visual calculation and this computer every single school in the, in the country got one of these um, second level schools that in is, Ireland in Ireland back in, ni- in January 1982 and do you know how much they would have cost approximately about I'd say 1200 and the contract was given with Apple because they were manufacturing in Cork and they uh, got the contract to put a computer into every single secondary school so there's a, you know it's a long tradition almost you know 30 years there but if you look at the back of them you can see here it's made in Ireland. It had 48k of memory. It was very easy to use. A proper keyboard. You could attach it to a television screen. And as here well. we're looking at we're looking at essentially what looks sort of like a, a typewriter. I mean, yeah. so you had an, a, a monitor external to this, I presume. Uh, yeah. You had an external monitor that you could purchase separately, or a television set, for instance. You could uh, plug it into a television set. But obviously, in offices, they use green uh, monitors at the time, black and white. Uh, a proper functioning keyboard. Uh, this drive's storage space came separately, as you can probably see. Yeah, from the uh, picture here itself. You so that was 1981 that they came to Ireland. So now we're looking at a row of computers, British manufactured computers, I understand, from, the, from the 1980s. Yeah, um, early 1980s, yeah. So why, why have a section on, on British computing? Because the British were very much at the forefront of bringing microcomputer technology into education and into the general public. And Clive Sinclair, one of the great um, innovators of the, of the 70s, he, he was involved in calculators, um, in 1980 brought out a computer known as 
the uh, ZX based on its processor, ZX80. Here we have the ZX81. You could buy this. It was the first computer that was sold in Britain for under £100. And it had 1K of memory. So what I'm looking at is almost like a, a tiny keyboard. Yeah, um, membrane keyboard, yeah. And uh, with sort of a... Is, is this a hard drive here behind it? Or is this, There's is no this hard drive. Okay. There's no storage space whatsoever. You switched it on. You, you, you typed in your um, uh, games. We also use tapes at later stage. You can see the tape unit here in a later model. We literally <laughs> typed in our program. And once we turned it off, we lost it, you know. So uh, for, so it didn't come standard with a storage device. But you, you could plug into your microcassette player and store it. But On a microcassette? Yeah, yeah, but the quality was pretty bad. And it would take you ages to upload a game or anything. So a lot of young people, there was lots of books out at the time. It was a real great thing for children. There you go, missile attack and, and so on and so forth. You typed in your game in basic. This is a basic a book, of, a book of code here, a basic exactly. code. For and this was very important because young children didn't buy off the shelf uh, games they wrote their own games so for instance you could buy say a game like missile attack here but you could put in an extra line of code speeding so it you up were playing games and down. learning a bit of basic programming yes, as well at the absolutely. same time you were becoming a creator not just a user and that's what I'm, that's one of the the hallmarks of this museum in Derry outreach we promote innovation we promote the role of young people in the development of communications and we promote the role of Irish as well so there's different exhibits around to the Irish so this came out in 19 1981, it had 1k of memory you could then later on you got a pack a 16k pack that you could add on but imagine now we're dealing in gigabytes and then you were dealing in k a single k but this is a fantastic a, computer a bbc microcomputer micro computer, yeah because bbc were the broadcasting corporation they're always into education and documentaries be it on environmentalism be it on on politics be it on social cultural change and so on and technology with tomorrow's world from this period so they decided to bring out a series of weekly programs on computing this whole new technology known as computing so they set up a weekly program teaching things like robotics about programming uh, interfacing a computer to different equipment and so on and they commissioned a company known who won the contract called Cambridge Diagnostics to bring to the, to develop this computer known as the BBC computer and it was it sold you know how many they sold into schools one million because with BBC broadcasting behind computing schools went in with open arms into technology and they were the first country in the whole world not just to get one computer per school like we were doing in Ireland they were putting in whole laboratories of computing the guy behind Amstrad you probably know him very well from television Amstrad 64k personal computer we're looking at here this is Alan Sugar who's very famous now on television. He's from The Apprentice. From The Apprentice. Now, he um, started off in the 60s selling uh, televisions and so on and so forth. But he saw in the 80s, early 80s, that computing was to, uh, was the way to go. It was, the, it was what should be used in manufacturing, in offices, administration, schools, and so on. Um, so what he saw, he saw there was a niche there in the market, in, in offices where um, maybe accountants were using physicalc and computers like that, but the secretaries, were st- which were the fast, majority um, uh, to a large degree of, of office staff were still using electronic typewriter. So he brought out a one-stop shop computer that had a standard screen with it, 80 columns across like your A4 sheet. Um, it had um, a proper keyboard that felt exactly like a typewriter and it had programs um, stored on a cassette, a built-in cassette. So and this is where the process yeah, we've, got, we've got Steve Davis' sneaker yes, and... Yes. Um, a Robocop microcomputer game as yeah. well. So they're the games ones, but within the offices, they were using word processing. 
Within two years, he had 60% of the UK market and 20% of the European so this is one of the market. first real computers to get into the home. Uh, yes, and to get into the offices, which is really what you see. So there's, there's, so the fame and fortune that uh, um, that Alan Sugar has today, and that he's known, uh, as you say, on The Apprentice and so on, it really came from computing technology. You know, and over here is is what we would define as the world's first proper um, personal computer, <coughs> desktop computer. And you, this is a Commodore PET we're looking at. Exactly. Commodore Pet, Commodore the company, was set up by Jack Tramiel, who was um, a, a Polish Jewish survivor of the Holocaust. He became a taxi driver in New York. But he saw, again, a great entrepreneur as opposed to an innovator. And he got together with um, the actual developer of the 6502 processors. Um, microprocessors were developed from, by Intel onwards from 1971. So he had the first computer that came. You see the screen? If you look, it's built into the computer, and it sh it, this computer is in the shape of the body. This is the head, <laughs> and these are the So the, the screen shoulders. is resting on top of the... Uh, exactly. Uh, above the keyboard, um, and it's sort of a, a triangular shape mm. with a dual floppy disk drive. Yes. the uh, dual floppies came later, yeah, but that's right. And you can see there's metal. You know, obviously we standardised in hard plastic afterwards. The one beside it is one that he brought out in 1980. It is the first million-selling computer in the world. And it was great. I used it myself. You could plug it into the television set and you could play colour games and so on. It was a great hit in 1980, 81 and 82. This is a Commodore Vic, is that what it's called? Yeah, Vic 20. And the reason why it sold a million was thanks to this man, William Shatter, a.k.a. Captain James T. Kirk at the USS Enterprise. Well, I, I would buy anything from him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, uh, um, parents did because they felt Star Trek was the most popular TV programme, uh, you know, across a lot of the world at the time. And they was Captain J James T. Kirk of the future telling parents that this is what the child needs to make the future happen, to be creative and so on. So he convinced enough people through the advertising. Thanks to Brendan for showing me around. And if you're wondering what some of those odd noises in the background were, I'll be continuing my tour on an upcoming episode of Cybernia. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on at the museum by searching on Facebook for National Computer and Communications Museum and liking their page. That's just about it for this week's show, but uh, just before we go, we have a few events to tell you about. As Halloween approaches, the Cork Skeptics will be hosting a talk on ghost hunting at Blackrock Castle Observatory on Friday, October 21st from 8pm. The event will also feature a talk on so-called cryptic animals such as Bigfoot. The talks are free and you can get more info at corkskeptics.org. The Science Foundation Ireland's Speaker Series returns to the Science Gallery on November 3rd with a talk from science writer James Glake, who will be speaking about his new book, The Information, which covers the history, evolution and the future of information. The talk starts at 6pm and it costs €5. Euros. To book, visit sciencegallery.com. If you fancy pitting your brains against Cybernia, come along to the Science Gallery table quiz on Friday, November 4th at 6.30pm. It's €40 Euros for a table of four and you can book at sciencegallery.com. And on Tuesday, November 8th, the Royal Irish Academy will host a talk by Professor Colm O'Moran on cancer prevention at Academy House in Dublin. The talk is free, however tickets should be booked in advance at rai.ie. That's all for Cybernia this week, which was brought to you in association with Discover Science and Engineering. If you're a fan of the show, why not drop us an email and let us know what you think, or ask us any sciencey questions you might have. You can email us at podcast at cybernia.ie, or you can find us on the web at cybernia.ie, at twitter.com forward slash cybernia, or at facebook.com forward slash cybernia. Thanks to all our contributors, thanks to our producer Gavin, Engineer FM, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>